Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. I'll be reading from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12, starting at verse 8. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Thanks, Amy, and sorry, Paul. That should have been 8 through 14, and not, I, yeah, sorry. All right, well, first thing, um, happy hockey season, everybody. Uh, and kids, uh, if you would like to head out, uh, you can do that. Um, we have EGC this morning, which is third, fourth, and fifth grade, to go and go through some of the, the uh, New City Catechism, and then uh, Elevate is first and second grade, where I don't quite know what you do. You just go back in that room back there and do something to talk about Jesus and scream and work with cups for, there was a time when that was happening. Um, All right, this morning uh, we're going to continue on in uh, Deuteronomy um, that we have been going through this fall, and we're getting into these laws and stipulations, uh, and uh, this is kind of 12 through 26 of Deuteronomy is Moses going over these laws and stipulations, and we're going to walk through these over the course of the next month, and while I'm uh, thinking about this and remembering this, uh, if you've ever read through these laws, there may have been some where you're like, that's weird, and it is. We, we're going to touch on some of those, but not all of those, but in a couple of weeks, I do want to let you know, the next, we'll have EGC, um, but we are going to be uh, addressing some of the laws that uh, might be questionable for young ears. I'll just say it that way. Um, And so we will have EGC, we will have uh, Elevate those Sundays, so if kids want to go to that, they can if they want to stay in here. Um, Just some of the laws that might be hard to grasp and some of the ways that, especially uh, seeing how Deuteronomy actually dignifies women. Um, But we're going to do this in a way that it's not like It'd be, it'd be, it's going to be sensitive, all right? It's not like rated R sermon or anything like that. It might, it's going to be sensitive. Is that all right? Okay, cool. Uh, this morning, 
Um, we're going to start off in, in Deuteronomy 12 and 13. If you want to, if you if you have time this week, well, you have time this week. If you want to take time this week uh, to read those, uh, you can you can ask all kinds of questions. Um, but here's where I'm going to start. I'm, I am not uh, I'm not an architectural guru at all. I'm just going to tell you right off the bat. I am talking way out of any area of expertise, but the illustration fits. At least in my theory, it fits. All right. So bear with me. Uh, I. I think that architecture is fascinating. If you, if, St. Louis is actually a hub of a certain style of architecture. You can walk down and look at the tops of buildings and the ways that they are decorated and, and uh, the ornate detail. It's actually pretty fascinating. Uh, but I remember one, uh, one time, I've been to Las Vegas one time. Uh, my wife and I went for her sister, middle sister, her wedding. Sorry. Um, I should probably start over. Can we edit the... All right. So uh, we went there for her, for her wedding, and we were walking down, uh, walking down the strip of Las Vegas. It's actually, been, it's actually been suggested that Las Vegas is not a city. It is a strip with, a, with uh, then, uh, houses and support system built around it. And um, we were walking down there, and, it's, and it, is, it is the glory and depravity of man. I mean, the architecture is beautiful and amazing and creative, and it's, you just walk down there and see the, the amazing creativity uh, that man has, and it's all built for porn and gambling. It, it is the glory and depravity of man. Um, and so from Las Vegas, actually, there was a, uh, there's a book called Learning from Las Vegas uh, that a guy, Robert Venturi, wrote, and it sparked a movement of postmodern architecture. And postmodern architecture, it has, um, it's a new design for buildings and also for cities. It's not just about the building itself, but actually how do you architect a city as a whole. And, um, and it's pretty fascinating. And I have, we have a few pictures. I, I, I had Paul pull up some interesting pictures, even though he found some that contradicted. And that, all right, you left that one in. <laughs> there we go, all right. Uh, when you take a look at these buildings, they are, they're fascinating. This is a response to kind of the old ways of, of stagnant, stationary design, buildings that ignored the surroundings and just put big square blocks uh, in the middle. But there's some fascinating art. I welcome the problems and exploit the uncertainties. I like elements which are hybrid rather than pure, compromising rather than clean, accommodating rather than excluding. I am for messy vitality over obvious unity. I prefer both and to either or, black and white and sometimes gray to black or white. An architecture of complexity and contradiction must embody the difficult unity of inclusion rather than the easy unity of exclusion. And I think these buildings are, are fascinating. Uh, the creativity, the curves, the seemingly impossible ways the buildings move and flow, defying all of the old rules, and dare I say it, looks like some of them defying just the laws of nature itself. Brilliant. There is one aspect, however, of postmodern architecture. Though spitting in the face of all that has come before it, there's one part that did not and cannot change. 
the foundation. Same measurements, same depths, same rules. You don't just get to fly in the face of the foundations. You have to apply them strictly or else everything falls. Moses is continuing his sermon here into the initial laws and stipulations of God's covenant with the people of Israel. And what he starts with in this, uh, what he starts with in, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12, in the stipulations, he's, he's continuing the sermon. What he starts with is this idea of the gathered worship. The gathered people of God together to worship God. And I will tell you, this has been both encouraging and challenging uh, for me when, to think about Sunday mornings, to think about why we do this, to think about what's on, what's on me and us and elders as, as a, a presentation of this time, but also what's on us as a people gathered and our mindset coming into this and what happens when we, when we get together on a weekly basis. And I really, I really hope this is encouraging to you. I hope that this is... Like, I read this, and it was, it was beautiful and eye-opening. Uh, and I hope and pray the same for you, uh, because it won't be on God's Word. It'll be on me being able to explain that. But hopefully the Holy Spirit will, will um, make this come to life. There is a depth revealed in these words and these stipulations of, of just how much goes into this gathered time of worship uh, that is set up for us in Deuteronomy 12 and into 13, and it becomes, when we see it in its proper light, this becomes the foundation for every other law and stipulation that takes place. This becomes the foundation for justice, for equity, for righteousness, for forgiveness, for atonement, for praise, for thanksgiving, all of the other stipulations that we're going to see. This time of gathered worship replays over and over again the truth of who God is and who we are in light of that. And this becomes the foundation uh, for God's design, the way the world was, was meant to operate, and then our, our role in it, how we then reflect that. All right? So here's our outline for today. We're going to look at the laws, which is going to be the boring part. I'm going to encourage you to stay with me during that. Maybe it won't be. The, maybe it'll be the most exciting part. I don't know. Uh, the laws the implications, and then we'll finish with the reason we gather. So we're going to start with the laws uh, and the stipulations that God puts in place. Um, this is the command of God for when the people of God are to enter into the promised land. And so what's important with that is you'll notice that this command comes with a promise. When God says, when you enter the land, there's a heavy implication there. I am going to provide for you to enter the land. All right, that's something that, that is hopeful. Um, but he also gives, uh, he also gives some, uh, some stipulations for where they are now and as they enter the land. The first stipulation in Roman, we didn't read this, not Romans, Deuteronomy 12, 2 says this, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and, every under, every, uh, and under every green tree. Something that I want to bring to light here. All right, so God has commanded his people, we talked about this a few weeks ago, God has commanded his people to take this promised land and to utterly destroy the nations, and not only their false worship, but their violent and raunchy 
worship practices that were in the land that God told them to possess. He tells them not only to utterly destroy the nations, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, but also to destroy all of the places, the temples, uh, and the elements of their worshipful, of their worship practices. Uh, I want to say again um, a couple of things here. God does not command his people to go to other places and destroy their worship temples. Like he doesn't say go, and then when you get there, start going to your neighbors and destroying their worship temples. There are, there are, I believe this is a unique time in God's history where God is saying, this is the land I have given you. There are nations there that are detestable and their practices, they are burning their children even on the altars. You are to go in and dispossess them there. And this is the only time, there's, only, there's one other time if you read through scripture that God would, uh, w- that God may uh, allude to violence and that is to protect Israel within the land. But it's not a general command of go and be violent and build your empire. The other thing when he says to destroy the temples in this land, he doesn't again say go to neighboring places and destroy their temples. The command is within Israel do not, and oftentimes what you'll see if you follow the story along, kings will go and they will rebel against God and they will build temples to false gods and then God will command if a new king rises up and returns to the Lord to destroy the temples within those boundaries. All right? So this, again, this is not God ordaining imperialism. This is not God saying, once you get in here, then I want you to go to war with this people and this people and this people and start destroying their temples. Are you with me? Does, does this make sense? Here again, you can still have issues with this. You can still go, yeah, I still don't know. Okay. But keep these things in mind. Don't be reductionistic in our approach here uh, on either way. Um, and so what he says is to go in and destroy these temples. Something that I have found uh, interesting. One, um, God is destroying places of worship that were set up in the promised land. And he's already made known to the people over and over and over again, do not worship the gods in this way. You're going to be tempted to bow down and worship these gods. Do not do that. Worship me. Um, And so he's destroying all the temples, all the monuments, all of those things. And this is something I found interesting. Uh, Moses talks about going to these places being in the high tops, the mountaintops and the high places in the hills. Uh, there's a famous psalm that w- it's even put to song, Psalm 121. Um, uh, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from where comes my strength. You guys, have you heard that psalm before? So this was a song of ascent, and it was, it was quoted and maybe even sung by the people of God as they took one of their three annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem, to where the temple was. I have always thought of this as like, walking and looking up to the mountaintops and seeing the majesty of the mountains and just how big and beautiful they are and going, man, God is big and mighty and majestic. The high places were the places where the pagans built temples for their gods. These were the places because this is where the gods dwelt, supposedly, looking down on the affairs of men as they dwelt on the mountaintops. And so what what is actually taking place in that psalm, and, in, and even here, is when you are walking along the road and you look to the high places and you see the temples and the monuments built to the devotion of gods that have no function and do not exist, that is the time to say, 
That is not where our hope comes from. Our hope comes from the Lord. I've just always found that fascinating. Um, I say always. I have more recently found that fascinating because I always thought it was the other way. Uh, all right. God will not be worshipped in the way that these gods were worshipped. Pagan, pagan rituals and sacrifices were, were raunchy and violent. It's actually something Dan Brown does get right. Um, and that's, you can, whatever. Uh, and, uh, and, and we'll talk about that in a couple weeks, all right? Um, and especially, especially when it came to, like, fertility goddesses, uh, God wants these places and practices of worship and these gods gone from the land that he is giving to his people. One of the, other, one of the next stipulations, Romans 12, uh, gosh, Romans, Deuteronomy 12, 5, says this, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. Ultimately, what God is referring to here is there will be a place of central worship. Okay, this will ultimately refer to the temple, but I also think there's a sub-reference in this. Uh, Moses is going to say, we're not worshiping in the way we are now where everybody does what is right in their own eyes. The gathering of God's people is not just you do you, you just you go where you want, and if you meet God in nature, go out in nature. If you meet God in this place, go do this. He is saying, no, there is a place where the people of God will gather. And I think what this underscores in this is, follow, follow me on this, God does not belong to the people of God. The people of God belong to God. Does that make sense? We are not given a God that we get to fashion in our own image and take with us and apply in places where we want to apply them, like in imperialistic type of ways. It is we who are called to come from our places and come before him because we belong to him. He doesn't belong to us. Does that make sense what I'm saying there? Um, I don't want that to be confusing. Again, it's not each in his own way. Uh, that being said, this ultimately refers to the temple, but when Jesus comes and he's, uh, he is uh, talking to a woman at a well, and she asks about the temple. He says that eventually, and we'll get to this at the end, a little foreshadowing, but that the people of God will actually become the temple, the dwelling place of God, and that we will worship him in spirit and in truth. Um, next, Deuteronomy 12, 11. We read this. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. Uh, this is probably a bigger deal in their day than it is, than, than we will understand. Um, Leviticus gives us all of the stipulations and the laws and the rules for the sacrifices and what people are to bring. The tithe is actually a beautiful thing. It, it is not equal amounts. It is equal sacrifice. Tithe means 10%. So if you're wealthy, it's 10%. If you're poor, it's 10%. Um, and there's a, there's a beautiful calling there that Leviticus uh, will, will give the details on. Um, and, and Moses has listed all of the, the offerings and sacrifices that they were to bring. 
And then he says, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place you see. The practice of ancient days, the practice of ancient cosmology was you give an offering or a sacrifice to the fertility god in hopes of both your family and your livestock would reproduce. You give an offering or a sacrifice to the god of rain and uh, and harvest so that you will get rain. You give a sacrifice to this God. You give a sacrifice to this God. All those are here. And what God is saying is, no, all of these, this is your one-stop shop. That all comes to me. It is not a matter of sacrificing things in different places. Um, and in fact, in verses five, uh, 15 through 19, we'll see some restrictions and some freedoms on, especially when it comes to burnt offerings, and there's two types of animals. There's hunted animals and herd animals, and herd animals are more sacrificial, and hunted animals are more uh, to, to eat. None of that may necessarily matter to you, but there's even provision of that when God says, you can do this in your own towns, and when you come before me with your grain offerings and your wine and your oil offerings, there's actually permission in that to even indulge. Indulge in your grain offerings, in your burnt offerings, in your wine offerings. Feast. Eat deeply. Drink deeply. Imbibe. And that's, that is intention then with this fine line of, but do it as the people of God, not just you doing whatever you so choose, but do it as the people of God. Um, God does not want these animals sacrificed or even to be tempted to sacrifice to false gods, so he allows even an abundance or an indulgence as long as it's in his presence. And so God will even say, you can come before me if you're in my presence, feast and eat and drink deeply, and, and if you go a little overboard and we do this together, that's okay. All right? Now, don't walk out of here and be like, ah, the pastor said we can do whatever we want. No, he did not. But there's this beautiful picture here of when we are together in the presence of God, that is not the time for restrictions. That is the time for celebration. That is the time to feast. That is the time for an extra piece of chocolate cake. Not the whole chocolate cake, but an extra piece. All right, the final stipulation we'll talk about here, 12, 17 through 18, says this. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain. This is what I was talking about. The tithe of your, uh, tithe of your grain or your wine or your oil or the firstborn of your herd or your flock or of any of your vow offerings that you vow or your freewill offerings or the contribution that you present, but you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord will choose. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite who's within your towns, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. And so God makes this a very inclusive gathering. Your children, your servants, and your pastor. All right? Levites were the tribe of priests. They were commissioned to study and teach and administer the sacrifices. Their inheritance was not their own. It was tied to the people. They were bound to the people uh, and giving themselves up. They had nothing of their own. Something that I think God creates that is both beautiful and frustrating at times. There is a mutual dependence on the priest and the people. They have an accountability to one another that I think is hard but good. <laughs> 
there is a mutual accountability. But to the point here, the worship, the, the worship gathered is communal. And it is inclusive. There is no hierarchy. It's not a matter of social status. It's not a matter of who has more. It's not restricted. Um, no one is excluded before God based on external economic or social positions. And it was a time to celebrate. In chapter 13, if you read through chapter 13, it basically says the same thing three times. Um, and what it does is it sets the tone for anyone among you, so anyone from Israel who would come before the people and tempt them to go and serve other gods, that they should be put to death. All right? Uh, this goes for prophets and dreamers. That's the first paragraph. The second paragraph is sons and friends and family. And then the third paragraph is for anybody in the city. All three of these things, if we get troubled by this, all three of these things come with a great deal of warning. It's not just like, he's teaching falsely, let's go kill him. It is warning, clarification. Do you understand what you're doing? Is this what you are willing to do? And do you know the penalty for this? Yes, I do. Okay. Regardless of who they are. I also think this, this shows the gravity of what God is doing in establishing his people and the temptations that they will face to go and worship other gods. I think the, the punishment for this is God saying this is a big deal. Now, if you still hear this, and I still, I, I take this with, with a fairly heavy warning, um, the painful irony of this is that the high majority of prophets that were most often threatened with their lives were not the false ones. That's the danger of how this is carried out. The false prophets were actually pretty easy to listen to. It was the true prophets that we didn't want to hear. In the New Testament, Paul will give us plenty of warnings about false prophets. In the New Testament, Paul certainly does not say that the warning is physical, that the punishment for false prophets is physical death. Paul does, however, allude to the punishment for false prophecy in the New Testament is spiritual death. It is separation from God and his people. It is alienation and finding yourself on the outside but Paul's response to false prophets is not to charge after them. It's not to, he, does, he does give warning, but the way that he responds is grief. It is anguish and sadness, and I think that's appropriate. All right, so those are the laws. Now we're going to get to the implications, and I promise we'll go faster here. One of the things that we talked about a couple weeks ago when we talked about these laws and stipulations that God gives was the difference between simply following a list of rules do's and don't do's, and come and checking off the list versus the overarching theme, which is to become the type of people that these are leading you to. That, that we are to be um, God's covenant people. That it's not as much about what we do as it is about who we are becoming that we are properly and rightly bearing the image of God and the spirit of what he calls us to be. 
Um, the gatherings in Old Testament Israel, these were varied weekly, from weekly Sabbath gatherings to festivals and feasts to the, the three big pilgrimages every year, uh, which we're, we're in the middle of right now, one of them, uh, to the temple in Jerusalem. Um, and, and who the people were to become reflected these stipulations of the one they worshipped. The people were to begin to reflect the God that they worshipped, not the God who began to reflect the people. And the implications are huge. I'm going to kind of, I'm going to kind of, this is, this is applicable in this day, but it does jump forward even into our day. So I'm going to kind of mix those and blur those. This is not about us coming to get what we want. This is not about us going to a worship service or a church or being part of a thing that is, that this is, this is my style, this is my preference, this happens on my time, I like this better, I like this better. This is not about us coming to get what we want. Um, and that's hard in our day because everything else is marketed to us that it, it should be about what we want. And remember, commandment number one, this is a God who does not need or keep counsel with lesser gods. And the harsh reality for us in our day is that includes us. He does not need a co-pilot. He does not need us sitting next to him on the throne and saying, let us work together on how we're going to manage the world. This is a God to be worshipped and enjoyed, not manipulated or, or pleased with our attendance uh, or bargained with when times get tough. He is to be worshipped and enjoyed. The feasts and the offerings and the festivals to come before God when they were brought to the right place, even the space for indulgence of the good gifts of God. With the qualification of wisdom being, being God-like people, the people that reflect Yahweh. But also the deep imbibing of the good gifts of God. There's a way to indulge that is about escape, or about coping, and there's also a way to indulge that is about gratitude and about joy and about thanksgiving. The worship gathering is central and it's communal. Can you meet God in the trees and on a path and in the mountains and all that stuff? Yes, but the danger of making God in our image, and this is how I like him and this is where I see him and this is what I, it totally flies in the face of the way God designed this to work. We come together. This is a communal gathering of people. Your sons, your daughters, your servants, men, women uh, of, of high standing, of low standing, everyone in the community. God commands a communal gathering that's not about our personal preferences, but about becoming the people gathered to praise and rejoice and feast and celebrate the goodness of God. And then all of these feasts and festivals that Israel would do and all of these gatherings would be on display for, those, for all of those uh, nations who surround them, that they would look and they would say, who is like their God? There's accountability for justice. There's accountability for love of neighbor. When we gather to worship God together, um, 
there's just this reminder that we give every week. We talk about how we are not owners of what we have. We are stewards if we're caught up into God's kingdom. We get to look in the face of people around us that are not like us, people with different echo, echo, people with different amounts of money, um, and uh, people from different parts of the city, people of different fan bases, people of uh, different preferences, and we come together, people with different experiences of life, and we're called, and we have to confront those things with each other, and we have to learn from each other. We have to be humbled by that. We provide for one another. We learn to say, what I have is not mine. It is God's, and so I want to steward it well. And there's even, we're going to get to this, this thing next week where, God's, where God even says, hey, care for the poor, and then, and then enjoy. That God's gifts are to be enjoyed and given joyfully. And there's an accountability when we meet together and we're not all alike. That we, we get to see the awe and wonder of God and we get to see that in our own preferences and how we butt heads at times. There's a mutual challenge for the community of God to be absolutely welcoming and inviting, and yet there's a call for each of us to submit to one another, to the whole. The humble heart, the humble of heart, there's a welcome to belong. The proud and the headstrong, this is not a place for them to get their own way and demand that everybody come to my point of view. Take your pick, whichever point of view you want that to be. This is a place to practice both. This is not, it's not supposed to be optional for when we feel like it. It's not supposed to be entertaining. We don't just go to the church that makes us feel good, and yet it shouldn't be stiff, as if we're not encountering the God of the universe who made all things and invites us to rejoice in his presence. Um, it's not a competition with other churches in town. Um, And it's not a corporation. I want to tell you, this is my biggest struggle with the American church. If you knew how many emails, I can't un- unsubscribe enough. And listen, I'm not saying this like I'm some kind of high and righteous. Like, it is tempting. It's tempting. But I can't tell you how many emails I get every week about growing the church, growing your budget. Um, having these giant walls that glow and show movies and they're like this huge extravaganza and how to get cool lights. I mean, we, we got cool lights. Um, and uh, so we gave in on that one. How to get more people, how to produce more baptisms, how to engage, engage with the meta universe, uh, how to get your online presence bigger, and by all means, how to increase branding. The people of God are called to regularly meet together, to come before God, to look and remember and recall God's provision and his goodness, and to praise his greatness and his mercy and his grace. And to remember that if we were saved by grace, if we were sinners reconciled by the grace of Jesus, then who are we to withhold grace to anyone who would come before God with a humble heart? 
and we learn how to serve and love him and one another. And listen, I get it. This is ideal. Uh, It takes right and humble hearts. It takes reminding often. And I'm not going to tell you we get this all right. And I'm also not going to tell you we get this all wrong. I don't know. I don't see anything in here about the command for me to stand up here for all right, 45 minutes, and, and talk to everybody as they sit in rows. We are married loosely to the methodology, but we are married gloriously and hope-filled to the one who gave us, who, who made the world and called us to be his people. And, and it's this reminder of who we are to be. So these are the laws and the implications, and we'll finish with why we gather. Uh, God's people gather throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, God's people would gather together every Friday into Saturday for the Sabbath, the gathering on the last day of the week. And they would do a meal together and they would come and they would remember and recall and read Scripture together. And when God, when, when Christ comes, when he has died and resurrected, the early New Testament church began to switch slowly these gatherings from Friday night into Saturday onto the first day of the week, Sunday because that was the day of the resurrection. And the worship gathering maintained quite a bit of the same elements that that Moses originally commands and gives us here from God in Deuteronomy, but but the meaning and the reasons were exploded. The completion of this project of God forming and fashioning a people was met in the resurrection of Jesus, and so we gather to remember, to recall, to celebrate, and this is, what the New, this is what the New Testament church did. And so as a church, we gather every week to retell the story of the gospel. That God created the world good. We have two whole chapters of what it was like when God created the world and we walked in delightful obedience. that we trusted and followed him, that we obeyed the stipulations that he put in place for our good, that this was beautiful and the world was called good by God, and all people were made in in his image, unique to this God. But we rebelled. We decided that we would be better gods on our own, that we could captain our own ship, that we would be better general managers of the universe, that we all know better than Ali Marmel, right? That's cardinal reference. Certainly we all know better than Jeff Albert. That's even another thing. All right. Nobody. I keep forgetting. I love you guys. All right. We decided that we would be better gods on our own. We rebelled, and we did exactly what God told us not to be, and our rebellion led to hiddenness that we no longer heard God coming in the cool of the morning and delighted in his presence, but we ran from it. And we felt fear, and we felt shame, and we felt insecurity. And all of a sudden, we knew we were naked, and for the first time, we covered ourselves. But the story doesn't end there, though it should. God comes back to the garden. God forms and fashions a people. He takes a lowly and outcast people and rescues them and makes them a covenant, uh, makes a covenant with them. He makes himself known to them and through them to the whole world that he is the God of all creation. 
but this people is unable to fulfill their part of the covenant. The laws, the stipulations that were given to help them bear God's image became rules and became measurements of self-righteousness. This is how much better I am than you. And God says over and over again, you're missing the point. And from this people comes a man who would live perfectly on our behalf, die brutally in our place, and then rise again. And this is the good news of Jesus, that Christ has done for us what we could not do. He fulfilled the law, he obeyed every command, and he rescued us and has reconciled us to God, that we are a people who has experienced great forgiveness and redemption. We are a people who have been and are being made new. We are a people who have encountered this great and gracious King of the universe. And because of the work of Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, even in our imperfections, we are called and put on display to bear his image to the world around us. And we gather together every week to remember, to hope, to wait, to give, to love, to serve for righteousness and justice, to bear witness to the way God has designed the world to be and us in it. And we gather in the hope that we are not called to win the world, but that one day he will come and make all things new. So, here's our practice for this week and for the, next, uh, for the rest of uh, October. We're going to do this, what, four different ways for the rest of October. Same passage we're going to go over. Uh, we're going to use some different ways, different reflections. Um, we're going to read Psalm 1. This morning what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read this over you. I'm going to ask you to, we'll have it on the screen or if you want to close your eyes. And what David is going to talk about is delighting in the law. And what I want you to hear in that, when I read this over you, I don't want you to hear delight in all of these rules that we're supposed to do and not do. What I want you to hear, what I want to start sinking in, is the law becoming, this is the God who has made himself known. This is the God who has said, this is what I delight in. So I'm not staying up here as a mystery. I've made myself known. Delight in that and who I've revealed myself to be. Find joy in that. Um, to think about it less as things that we are to do and more as who we are to become. And he gives some beautiful illustrations in that. So here's, we're going to close with this. I'm going to read this over you. Let these words sink in. And then spend some time this week. Uh, I'd love for you to memorize this psalm if you have time over the, not if you have time, if, that, if you so choose. I don't want this to be overwhelming. I don't want this to be a rule. I want this to become something that is helpful to sink into your soul. All right, so let me read this over you. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of mockers. But blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. This man is like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields fruit in its proper season. Its leaf doesn't wither. All that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, 
They are like chaff or like the dead leaves that the wind blows away. And so the wicked will not stand in the place of judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, the way of the humble before him. But the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. God, as we are gathered together, thank you for loving your people. Thank you for calling us to be together. Thank you for the accountability, the hard... We, we are called actually to be shaped by each other, to be encouraged. Even in our differences, we're called to be refined by one another. We're not called to compare ourselves to each other, who is better. We're not called to measure guilt and shame by each other and feel just how far we have fallen. We are called to cling to one another as your people and to stand in your presence and to feast and rejoice and celebrate, to help one another, to feed one another, to lift up one another, to pray for one another, to see the needs of each other, to encourage each other. And all of this is set, set up early on in the history of your people that this is what it is to be the people of God on display for the world. This is what it is to build our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. So God, I pray that you would do this with this local expression of your church called Refuge, no matter how long this particular church stands. Your people, your church, have withstood for 2,000 years, generation upon generation. This is your bride. This is your church. May we continue to meet together to worship you, to trust you, to tell the stories of your great rescue and love and grace and forgiveness and justice and righteousness. And may we seek to follow you and to be on display for the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.